So right now, we're all spinning at 1,000 miles per hour, and we're moving at a speed of 1,100 miles per hour. And I'm not talking about us individually, but here on the Earth. That's the pace and the spin at which we're moving through space. It might surprise some of you, but it shouldn't concern any of you because your whole life has been spent moving at that speed and at that spin. If it moved any more slowly, or it moved more quickly, or if it moved at an unpredictable pace, that should be concerning because it would affect your whole life. It would affect the length of your days, the length of the sunshine, it affects the weather. But as it is, we can know exactly what to expect. 24 hour days, about 365 days in a year. And though you might not think about that, it affects your work, your leisure, your rest, and we plan for it to move at that space. Planning is an action, and any belief that leads to action is called faith. So faith isn't just a way of life for a few. Faith is the way that every human being of all times and all places has ever lived. And there's often a misunderstanding about what it means to live by faith, what faith really is. Uh, people think that faith is the same as blind faith. And blind faith is belief without truth. It's belief without true understanding, true perception, or right discrimination. But God doesn't require blind faith. He simply requires faith. And he describes for us what faith really is in Hebrews 11.1. 1. He says, faith is being sure of what you hope for, sure of what, sure of what you hope for in the future, and certain of what you don't have. So while God doesn't require blind faith, he also doesn't require 20-20 faith because there's no such thing as perfect vision faith, 20-20 faith. It's impossible. Because once you see something clearly, once you have obtained something, your expectations either have or have not come to pass. You're no longer looking into the future, hoping. So what this means is that no one can know anything apart from faith. Take, for example, the discovery of how fast the earth is moving through space. That one man, and even today, when you accepted that or questioned that as a fact when I presented it, you have to question the facts of, well, how did you get to that point? The one man who made that discovery didn't come to it all by himself. He used theories, he used equipment that other people built, and he built on their work. His conclusions were the result of him trusting the people before him. He was using faith. And you might say, well, he trusted because they were right, but people put their faith in right and wrong things all the time. That's how we live. And so that's what we're going to see in the scriptures today, that everyone everywhere has placed their, face, their faith in something, and faith is revealed in action. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to read the story of the spies of Israel going into the land of Canaan and giving their report. It's in Numbers 13, and it ends in Numbers 14. And as you locate that, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory. God had promised this land that they were going into. They'd, he'd promised it to his people over 400 years earlier. He'd given that promise to Abraham. And he'd also promised Abraham, who couldn't have children with his wife Sarah, a promised son. And eventually, 25 years after that promise, Abraham and Sarah, against all hope, had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel so we're going to be reading about the family of Israel today. Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the leaders of 12 tribes that we'll see in our story. Well, Israel and his family lived in a land that there was a famine, and through a miraculous story that begins in Genesis 39, 
God rescued the, the family and the nation of Israel through the second youngest of Israel's son, Joseph. And that's a, that's a good story to read for another day. But he rescued them out of the famine and brought them to Egypt where they settled and lived and eventually died. So the Israelites were living in Egypt and a new king came to power in Egypt and he enslaved the Hebrew people, the Israelites. But God heard his people's cry, rescued them out of slavery through Moses, and then they're wandering in the wilderness now. That's where they are as we read this story. So let's begin in Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert. All of them were leaders. And so Moses lists the 12 names from verses 4 to 16. And we're not going to read that, but it is important. There's details like this scattered throughout the Bible for a reason. And that reason is that at the time this was originally written, these people could be verified. This isn't a myth that was spread. This is a true story. You can fact check it because of all these names. And that happens in the Old and the New Testament. So we'll move on. You don't need to know their names, but you will learn two of their names at the end or as we continue. So Moses sent them out, sent the 12 leaders out to explore the land. And he said, see what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak. Are the people few or many? What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they fortified with walls or are they unwalled? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees or no trees? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land because it was the season for the first ripe grapes. So you could see exactly how fruitful the land was right now. And so they went and spied the land and when they reached the valley of a skull, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them, two of the spies, carried it on a pole between them, along with pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off from there. So Eskol means cluster, and so they called the place the Valley of Cluster. Must have been an impressive uh, piece of grapes. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. And they gave a good report about the land. Remember, they were supposed to say how the land was. He sa they said, it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And you might be thinking, where's the milk and honey in their report? Well, that's a phrase that God was using to poetically promise that in Exodus, back when he promised the land, he was poetically promising this land is going to be exceedingly good. And so they actually borrowed God's words and they said, yeah, it's just like God said. It's flowing with milk and honey. It is exceedingly good. But that wasn't the end of their report. They went on in verse 28 to say, But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. And so there's kind of a mixed report, and Caleb steps up in verse 30, and he silences the people because they were starting to get worried. And he said, We should go up and take possession of land, for we can, we can certainly do it. So the other spies at this point denied Caleb's claim and began changing their report about the land. Look at verse 32. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they just explored, a bad report about the land flowing with milk and honey. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. So now instead of a mixed report, it's just bad. And they go, they go on to say, we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, 
And then here's what you need to know about the Nephilim. They were huge. And so in verse 33, when the spies said, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own, life, in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So they're kind of putting words into the mouths of their enemy that, hey, we look like grasshoppers just because we feel like grasshoppers. So this is what Blackaby, little pause button now, this is what Blackaby's talking about when he mentions a crisis of belief. We're in week two of our Experiencing God study, and some of you, if you're like me, might read some of his words and be like, I'm not sure what he means. But this is an example of a crisis of belief. You feel like a grasshopper. So what are you going to do next? You seem like a grasshopper compared to someone else. So what are you going to believe? How you feel or what God said? Is the land really good or is it devouring the people who live in it? That's a crisis of belief. And no matter how much you believe or how long you've believed, we all experience crisis, crises of belief. So let's see how the community responded to this crisis of belief, these two reports. This is the beginning of chapter 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children are going to be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader, and we should go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell face down. This is a way of them submitting themselves to God, <laughs> letting God be their defender. They fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly. J Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies who had explored the land, they tore their clothes, which was a way of mourning. They were grieving the community's response. And they said, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good, if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He'll give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. So in the midst of chaos breaking out, mutiny or the verge of mutiny against the leaders, Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, warned and encouraged the people. And how do you think the people respond? Here it is in verse 10. The whole assembly talked about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Don't like what they're saying, so let's shut them up for good. And it looks like it's going from bad to worse, but God responds next. God steps in. And, he's, and it says in verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The tent of meeting was how God revealed himself to his people during this time period of history. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite all the things that I've done, all the signs I've performed among them? I'm going to strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I'll make you into a, a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses responds to God. Now they're having a conversation Moses responds by interceding. He steps in in front of the people, in front of God, between God and the people. And for the sake of God's fame, Moses intercedes for the people. He says in verse 13, But if you do that, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. And by your power, you brought these people out from Egypt. 
And the Egyptians are going to tell the inhabitants of this land, if you kill off all the people, and they've already heard, God, that you're with these people. So what's that going to say about you? If you put to death all these people, leaving none of them alive, the nations who've heard this report about you will say, the Lord wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. He says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. And now Moses quotes what God said earlier about himself. Moses quotes scripture. He quotes what God had spoken. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And you might think, what? What is God doing punishing the sin of the parents to the third and fourth? Isn't that a little excessive? Well, what that means is that sin never just affects you. Sin often creates negative patterns that takes generations to break free of. But that's not the end. He continues and he says to God, in accordance with your great love, because God promises to show love to a thousand generations to those who fear him, keep his commands. So in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of this people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt till now. And so God replies to Moses' intercession with his verdict. And his verdict is forgiveness, punishment, and reward. He's going to punish sin and reward faithfulness. God said, I have forgiven them just as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, all those who disobeyed me, not one of them will ever see the promise land that I gave on oath to their ancestors. No one who treated me with contempt, no one who didn't believe will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, follows me wholeheartedly, I'm going to bring him into the land that he went into and his descendants will inherit it. So then, we'll get, then we see next in the story specific consequences. God continues to give his verdict and he gives specific consequences for their specific actions. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I'll do to you the very thing that I heard you say. Get the irony here. God is giving them over to their own devices. This is what they said God would do. And God says, because you didn't believe me, I'm going to fulfill your fears. So verse 28. Surely as I live, I'm going to do the very same thing that I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more. 20 years old was the age of fighting. It was a fighting age. So everyone 20 years old and who's grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who gave the good report. As for your children, you said they'd be taken as plunder, and I promise that I'm going to bring them into the land that you've rejected. As for you, your bodies will fall in the, in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherd here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your body, until the last of your bodies lie in the wilderness. So for 40 years, one for each day that they spied out the land, they were going to suffer for their sins and know what it was like 
to have God against them. And then verse 35, he finishes by saying, I, the Lord, have spoken, and I'll surely do all these things to this wicked community, which is banded together against me. They'll meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So Moses, so the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him, these men, these ten bad spies, who were responsible for spreading the bad report, they were struck down immediately and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went in to explore the land, those twelve leaders, those twelve spies, only Joshua and Caleb survived. And when the Israelites heard about this, the whole community, they mourned bitterly. And so we're almost to the end of our story, but the people responded to God one more time. The next morning, they set out for the highest point of the hill country, saying, We're ready to go up and to take the land that the Lord has promised. Surely we've sinned. Now they're ready to obey when going is no longer obedience. Going is now disobedience. And Moses tells them, why are you going to disobey the Lord's command? This is not going to succeed. Don't go up because the Lord's not with you and you're going to be defeated for the Amalekites and the Canaanites. They're going to face you. And because you've turned away from the Lord, he won't be with you and you're going to die by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, faith is not the same as presumption. In their presumption, they went up to the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. God wasn't with them. They went up, and verse 45 gives us the end. that They went up, and then they were beaten down. So the story of the spies teaches us four characteristics about faith. And the first characteristic is that faith is embedded in a promise. God promised his people this land, and the people promised themselves something about that land too. And they made promises to each other that it would be better for them to go back to Egypt. Everyone in this story was believing a promise. It was either their own promise or it was God's promise. And we are not promised a land, but you better believe that we are still living by promises today. And the thing that God promises us now as his new covenant people is eternal life. And just like God defined faith, he defines eternal life for us. John 17, 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life. Pay attention. Knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Eternal life is relationship with God right now and forever. So what's our responsibility in that promise? We don't have the same promise as Israel, but we still live by promise. And our responsibility is the same as well. We're called to trust. We're called to have faith in this ongoing relationship with God. We have different promises, but we have the same response to God's promise. The response that we're called to is faith. And it's easy to look at this whole story and say, wow, they were so out of touch with what God was doing around them. He'd promised, this, he'd promised them this land. They'd been waiting and expecting it for 400 years. Then they're on the verge, and they, they decide to not believe the promise. How could you have such a short and bad memory? Well, we're really in a pretty similar position. We're, we're living in between two promises of God. Promise that Christ will come. That promise has been fulfilled. We have a whole book pointing to Jesus, pointing back to Jesus like we talked about last week. But we have really short and bad memory. 
And we live before the second promise comes, the promise, the promise that Christ will come again. We live in a time that requires faith. So faith is embedded in a promise, and we have to know what promises are we listening to. Are we listening to culture's promise of what a good life is? Or are we, are we listening to God's promise that the good life is the eternal life? Are we making promises to ourselves and the people around us? Are we listening to God's promise? Whatever promise you really believe, that's the promise that's going to shape your life. But receiving the promise and living a life of faith is not easy for them or for us. Not living a life of faith in God. We all live lives of faith. It's normally in ourselves, though. Receiving the promise wasn't easy, in part because their, their enemy was quite formidable. It was not a small enemy. It was a big enemy. And they just didn't have the faith in God to conquer that enemy. But their enemy really wasn't the Canaanites or the Amalekites. Their enemy is the same as our enemy, the devil. He is the one behind unbelief. He's the father of lies. And so he can, if he can get you to count on the wrong promise, then that's a surefire way for you to be disappointed with God and for, to keep looking for satisfaction in your life somewhere else. Receiving the promise isn't easy for us because we have to remember what the good life is. For them, they thought the promise that they believed was a good life is a battle that we can win on our own power. Good life is predictability. We should just go back to Egypt. We knew what we had there. And it sounds absurd, but we are also living absurd. We're living in a crazy way. When we, when we primarily want God to give us our desires. So whether your desire is for money, whether it's for no more singleness in your life, if your desire is for a dream job, a government that reflects your values, having nice things, being comfortable, there's all sorts of promises that were offered, but it's not going to solve our deepest problem. It's not going to give us the life that we really want, the life that we were made for. And none of those things that I mentioned are necessarily bad. Getting married is awesome. Being comfortable has its place. Having nice things isn't sinful in and of itself. It'd be great if the government reflected our values, but even though none of those things are necessarily bad, they become bad when it becomes a necessity to us. And so how do we combat all of these lies? How do we receive the promise? How do we overcome the enemy? Well, the first step is surrender. We have to surrender to God. We have to surrender to the king, not to the enemy. We surrender to the king, and we surrender our ways for his so that we can follow him. So are you willing, whatever your vision of the good life is, are you willing for that to be challenged and are you willing for that to be replaced? If not, you're in danger of missing out on the greatest good, which is fellowship with God right now. And receiving the promise is hard because we have a trust problem. We trust ourselves and, and not God. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad, it's just hard. We just have a faith disorder. We put our faith out of proper order too often. But God's salvation is our healing. And what, what I mean by that is the way that God has pursued us, the way that he is initiating with us, is, he, is he's saying, let go of what you want to hold on to so that I can fill your hands with me, with relationship with me. 
And the promise is only received by faith, by faith in God and not in ourselves. That's the third characteristic of faith. So in this passage, we saw that Caleb and Joshua's confidence was in the Lord. At first, they just said, we can certainly do it. But as the problem progressed, we saw that they believed that the people could do it because of what God had said. And Joshua and Caleb were about to get stoned. They didn't waver, neither did Moses and Aaron. The people's faith was in themselves, but Joshua and Caleb, Moses and Aaron, they placed their confidence in God. And so we all live by faith. But who are you placing your faith in? Some people here have never placed their faith in Christ alone. And so let him lead you starting right now. Tell him that. Talk to God about your faith this morning. And if you don't know what it means to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, talk to someone else in this room. There's a lot of people who care about you. Most likely you know someone else here, and they can help you through that decision. But if you haven't done that, then why not do it today? What's keeping you? Why are you continuing to put your faith in yourself? Why not put your faith in Christ? Other people have made that decision, but... Maybe you don't and you haven't seen over time Christ make a difference in your life, in your everyday living. And it forces you, or it should force you, according to the Bible, to ask a tough question. Do you really believe or did you just say a prayer to fit in and do what everyone else was doing? Our faith is revealed in our actions. So don't stay there. It's not too late for any one of us in this room to repent, to turn away from believing ourselves and to turn to trust in God. That's what living by faith means, is when we mess up, we fess up and move on. So if you are living by faith in God, recognize that living by faith in God is not your work. It's not what you do. That's what God is doing inside of you. Blackaby talks about identifying things that only God can do in your life. And only God can make and keep someone faithful. Only God can remind you of specific instances when you were trusting yourself, when you were trusting culture's promises to you, trusting other people's promises and ignoring his promises. Only God can move you from repentance of that back to faith in him. Repentance and faith is what happens when we first commit our lives to Jesus, but that is the mark of a Christian, is to repent and believe, repent and believe. That cycle never stops. That's how we grow. And so for an example, when I was a sophomore at Wichita State, I was walking through campus talking to a friend who was my small group leader, and he invited me to be his leader in training. And uh, I was encouraged by his kind words and his belief, but I told him no. I didn't think I was ready for that. I didn't want to step up and be a leader. Uh, the problem was that I was giving an answer out of, faith in myself, and it was a lack of faith in God. I didn't give any consideration, any prayer to what God would have me do. I only gave consideration to my insecure self. And I went home really bothered, and at first I didn't know, what is this that's eating at me? Uh, but then after I started to pray about it, I realized uh, I was bothered because I made a self-centered choice and not a God-centered choice. God had been changing me over the last two or three years of my life, to do things that I wasn't comfortable with so that God would grow me, so that God would get the credit for my life and not just Ben would get the credit for his life. And so then, 
after I'd been asked that and I said no, I went back to my friend, to my small group leader, and after I repented to God, I repented to him too, and I said, okay, I'll do it. And God used that to continue changing my life. But I, I share that story to, to simply show that part of living by faith is repenting. And the quicker that we repent and continue to believe, the more we will experience God as we walk with him in our lives. God's promises are received by faith, and our faith doesn't have to be perfect. What's perfect about our faith is the one in whom we trust. We have faith in the perfect one. We don't have perfect faith. And so the fourth characteristic of faith is how we respond to the promise has great consequences. And even as I was reading it this morning again for the umpteenth time, this scripture just continues to reiterate, God reiterates through his word how important the consequences of our beliefs are. Because he keeps saying, they will die in the wilderness. They will die in the wilderness. They will die in the wilderness. The ten spies, they died immediately. They were even punished more severely because they were leaders and they spread the bad report. The rest of Israel wandered in the wilderness, having God's back to them, essentially, for 40 years. But consequences aren't all bad. The positive consequences for Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron was they got to experience what it was like for God to be their deliverer. They were commended for their faith, and they were able to receive the promised land. Now later, Moses does something that keeps him from receiving the promised land. But for, for now, they were still able to receive God's promised land. Psalm 81, 10 through 12, uh, the psalmist echoes back or references back to this event. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And then he says, but my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. It's really helpful imagery when you consider all this went down in the desert. And God is saying, if you just open up your mouth wide, I will fill it. I will fill it. So whether you've committed your life to follow Jesus or not, this is what we all need to trust Christ. Because in Christ, God has done all that we need to experience life with him. We just have to receive it by faith. And so, like we talked about last week, we can find Jesus in every part of the scripture. And in this story, we see him in, in the person of God because Jesus is God, who must punish sin because he is just. And he finds a way to do that without giving people what they really and fully deserve, the full measure of their sin. And we see Jesus in Moses because Moses interceded for the people when God rightly wanted to wipe them out and start new. But Moses interceded and Jesus intercedes for us. And he is a better and more faithful witness than Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who brought the good news, the right news. Because Jesus brings the good news of the gospel and he showed us the trustworthiness and the goodness of God when he went to the cross and when he was risen from the dead. So that when we take up our cross, when we are faithful, we can be sure that God's not cheating us. He's not a masochist asking us to take up our cross because we can look back to Jesus and say, yeah, he's the faithful witness. He showed us the goodness and trustworthiness of God. So faith is embedded in a promise 
and we're promised eternal life. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. It's not easy to receive that promise, but it is possible because of what God did in Christ and what he is doing even now in the spirit of Christ among his people. The promise is only received by faith in God. That's something that only Jesus can do. It's the spirit who makes Christ known to us. And our faith has consequences. Faith is still a matter of life and death. Now, likely you won't be killed if you walk out of here and refuse to believe. That's kind of what happened in our story was immediate consequence. But if you don't believe, you won't ever really know what it was like to fully live, to live the life that God made you for. Jesus died because when we place our faith, wherever we place our faith is a matter of life and death. That's why Jesus died, because faith is a matter of life and death. So the application today is to believe what God has said and live like it. Faith without action is dead. Open wide your mouth and God will fill it. Not with what you want, but trust that God will fill your life with what is best for you. He's given you his best in the gospel. And this is what the gospel is. We're more sinful and flawed than we'd ever dared believe, but we're also more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That's what he will give you when you open wide your mouth to him. So believe that God will call you to something beyond your own abilities and believe that he'll do it. That's exactly what happened in this story. God is still showing himself faithful, making his glory known by calling his people to do something that is so uncomfortable for them, so outside of their power to do it. And that's where he's getting the credit and the glory. That's where he's getting your attention and my attention as well. So no matter how uncomfortable it is, take the next step. Maybe that next step for you is praying for your coworker who you know doesn't believe or praying for your coworker who you don't know anything about. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to share your faith with him, how your faith is making a real difference in your life and pray that Christ would save them. Maybe the next step is surrendering your relationship status to God. You've been trying to make it work, trying to fill that gap on your own and not really living surrendered. And, and when you surrender what you care about to God, trust that you're not going to get anything back in return except God's very best for you. Taking the next step might be repenting of something, like seeking comfort in your life above God's ways, what God has for you. And so just repent of that. Say, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that anymore. And then have someone else know that too confess that to God, confess it to someone else so that you have help in seeking God above comfort and trust that he'll change you. Maybe the next step is investing in another person so that they would grow in their walk with God. When you start doing that, you'll realize you don't really have what it takes to do that. That's something only God can do. So Blackaby's points are validated because they weren't his points, they're God's. Our faith reveals if we're living God-centered or self-centered. It starts with submitting to what God wants to do in your life. And when we experience a crisis or a predicament of belief, it's about trusting God and not trusting ourselves. Trusting God and not trusting the ways that the world gets us a job or the ways that the world pursues satisfaction. God is taking the initiative in our life as a church. God is taking the initiative in your life 
and we can't hear from him until we stop talking and really listen. So we're going to close the sermon part of our worship together by practicing uh, what's called step one in Mueller, George Mueller's approach to walking with God. And it's about surrender. So you'll see it on the slides. And he says, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. 90% of the difficulties of hearing from God, 90% of the difficulties of relating to God are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. So I'm going to close this in short prayer, but we're going to have a time of silent prayer as we individually, silently take that to God and experience 100% surrender. So Lord, you know my faith isn't perfect. You know that no one's here is, but we trust in you, Jesus. You are the perfect one. And you're the one who perfects our faith. Thank you that your forgiveness is complete, but your forgiveness isn't all we have. We have your spirit, we have you, and you are changing us. So God, make it very clear any areas that we need to repent and believe of, believe you and repent of ourselves. We, we are self-centered and we want to be God-centered. So help us as we seek you now.